Uh, welcome to Javel Prez. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Uh, we're going through the parables this summer, and we're into the parable of the rich fool. Uh, one of my personal favorite for some reason. Uh, friends, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 12 and then hear the teachings of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, <laughs> whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray together as we hear this parable of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would take hold of that which is truly life. And Lord, we know that riches are deceitful and they trick us. Uh, Lord, that they are like a mirage. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would believe the words of Jesus. And, Lord, that we would truly know that which is life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought we'd start off with a, uh, a thought experiment. If you inherited a million dollars, what would you do with it? If you inherited or, you know, you were bequeathed a million dollars, what would you do with it? Anybody know? Well, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet if you inherited a million dollars, your thought, your brain probably went to a couple things. Number one, you'd probably pay off your house if you haven't already, or you would be thinking about buying a home, uh, or you may be thinking about paying off school. Uh, you may be thinking about giving gifts to your, you know, children or your loved ones. Uh, but probably most people, if you were just given a million dollars, you would probably do what? Anybody want to take a guess? I think most of y'all would probably choose to do what I would probably want to do, which is travel, right? Don't give me money, give me experiences. But now let's, let's, let's nuance that question, right? If you were given a million dollars, let's put a little wrinkle into that question. Let's say you were given a million dollars, but you had to give it away. What would you do with it? If you had to give, give all of it away, it's not quite so easy to figure out. Your brain doesn't really get all that excited about it. And, uh, you know, if you really thought about it, if you were, you know, given a million dollars and, you know, part of the inheritance said, well, you have to give it away, you know, chances are, if you're anything like me, your first thought would be like, who's deserving of this? I want to just give it away, you know? I'm not just going to give away a million dollars. I got to figure out who's deserving. You know, ironically, no one ever asked that question about how they would spend it, right? Whether if you were deserving of a million dollars, but you were all giving it away. Hmm, I got to be a little bit more discerning about this. Well, friends, I think this thought experiment is so helpful to think back to because it really does work to show you what it is that relies on your deepest longings in life. It really reveals what you and I most care about. 
Uh, And, you know, Jesus says a lot of things about greed and coveting, which is wanting something that someone else has a rightful ownership of and just wanting it too much. In fact, Jesus warns his disciples in this very passage against all manner of greed and coveting. But the problem is, uh, I would suggest to you, friend, is that you and I, we never think that we're greedy. Uh, this, is, this is one of the things about the deceitfulness of riches, is that uh, all kinds of people, uh, and if this is true for almost anyone in ministry or any pastor, people will come to us confessing all kind of crazy things that will make your toes curl and you cringe when you hear them talking about things. But never, ever in my life has anyone ever come to me and confessed that they were too greedy. It's amazing, and I'm not the only one to point this out. Tim Keller also talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, He, you know, famously preaches in New York City and never once has anyone in New York City, in Manhattan, ever come to him and said, I think I have a problem with money. Well, I think the problem is, friend, that when you and I think about greed, we don't think that we want a bunch of stuff. You know what it is? When you and I encounter money, it's not that we want a bunch of stuff. It's just that we want what? More. We just want a little bit more, right? And I'll prove this to you because when I said, when you, if you were going to inherit a million dollars, some of you thought what? That's not that much money. Some of you were like, I could use a little bit more. That probably wouldn't pay for the house that I want, probably wouldn't pay for the lake house that I want, it wouldn't pay off my mortgage. Some of us are already saying, well, can I get a little bit more in the inheritance? You see, Jesus says that these things, this desire for more, this greed, it's always prevalent among us. You know, a couple weeks ago, I preached on this uh, parable of the sower, and Jesus says that uh, greed can choke out our faith. And if you remember, I compared it to uh, mycelium, a type of fungus that's over in eastern Oregon. It's the largest living thing. And what is that fungus like? It is like this little layer of thin white goo that works its way underneath trees, and it eats them from the inside out. You see, friends, when we see our greed, we don't see the big things. What we see is we just want a little bit more. And, you know, you know, you know the saying, birds of a feather do what? Flock together. Birds of a feather flock together. You know what that means? That means generally when you think about who has a lot of money, you look to people that you spend time with that are generally in your same category. And so you don't realize that you and I are fabulously wealthy on a global scale to compare ourselves to people living, you know, around the world. Well, we think of our, our peer groups, our friends. We think, well, I could use just a little bit more than them. Or we may think that they have more than us, so I just want an incremental amount. You know, this is part of the deceitfulness of riches. You know, and nobody gets to this better than Calvin. And Calvin is my favorite theologian. And he points it out this way. If we can click to the slide. My slide isn't working. Jack, can we go to the Calvin slide? There we go. So this is my favorite theologian, Calvin and his buddy Hobbes. Hobbes is an economist, if you don't know that. But they're also cartoon characters. Sorry, this is Calvin from the cartoon. If you can't read that, uh, Calvin is, you know, talking to his imaginary best friend, Hobbes. Uh, Are y'all old enough to know who Calvin and Hobbes are? I realize this is dating me on some level. Some of you know who this is. Uh, But Calvin is walking, and he's talking to his imaginary best friend, Hobbes the tiger, and he says this very profound statement, getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. But when you have something, you take it for granted, and it's boring. And then he says what? That's why you always need to get new things. See? When you get something, it's new, exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted. But then, you know, Hobbes points out, but everything you get turns into something you have. 
He says, but that's why you always need to get new things. Do you, how much is enough? How much is enough? How much would enough be in your mind for money? How much? Or how many experiences? Just a little bit more. Uh, friends, what I want to suggest to you is that riches, riches are like a mirage. Have you ever seen a mirage on the end of a road? You've ever been on a road trip and you've seen a mirage? Right? It's just out of your reach. And when you get there, it does what? It vanishes. And then you do what? You see the next mirage further down the road. Right? The Bible says it this way. It says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to decease. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Uh, the book is, the Bible's full of warnings like this. You know, Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And he who loves wealth with his income. Did you catch that? Ecclesiastes says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Friends, what I want to suggest to you is that greed and coveting is an insatiable desire that can't be removed from your heart. It's part and parcel with the world that you and I live in. It can't be removed. It can only be replaced with something better. So let's look down at this parable, right? Uh, Jesus is giving us a series of parables all throughout the Gospel of Luke and throughout his teachings. And really, what are these parables all getting at? Well, they're getting at that which is truly life. Now look at uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, Jesus is talking, and uh, someone interrupts him in verse 13. Someone bursts through the crowd, and they yell out, Teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And how does Jesus respond to that statement? Hey, Jesus, I have a family dispute I need you to settle. And how does Jesus respond? He says, man, which is not a very polite way of speaking to somebody. He does not call him brother. He doesn't call him friend. He says, man. You know, we may say, mister, <laughs> buddy, back off. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he, Jesus turns away from this man, and he turns to his disciples. He turns to all of the people that are around him, and he gives them this incredible statement. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, friends, you know, already, already we are at the point of discipleship where you have to realize that you and I have not arrived Part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus means on some profound level you acknowledge to yourself and before the Lord that you have not arrived. You and I, we have much to go. We are on a path with Jesus. We are following the way of the cross. We are trying to catch the rhythm of the kingdom of God, but we haven't arrived yet because there's a part of us that is going to always be deceived. And if you don't think you're deceived, that's the first sign that you are deceived. And you know how you can be deceived? It's by riches and just wanting a little bit more. You say, I don't want a big thing. I just want a little bit more. I just want to get to that mirage on the end of the road. But Jesus looks to people like you and me, and he says what? Take care. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. And do you think in your heart, I don't have to do that. I'm not worried about it. That's not me. Other people, yes, they're greedy. They struggle with wanting more. Me, no. But friends, part and parcel of being a disciple is hearing the words of Jesus. And when he says, take care, be on guard, guard yourself against all kinds of greed, there's a sense that we have to believe that he really is speaking to us, that this affects me just as much as it affects you, just as much as it affected the whole group of disciples 
that Jesus is talking to. So uh, what is Jesus's, you know, teaching around this? Well, uh, you know, we could keep going through the rest of the Bible on all the teachings about greed, but really Jesus is going to start with a parable. Look at verse uh, 16 with me. He says, and he told them a parable saying, and he goes on and he tells a parable. But before he jumps into the parable, did you notice what Jesus says to the man in verse 14? He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Uh, you know, I think the first step of a disciple uh, is to really step back and ask yourself, who is Jesus, right? What did he come to do? And when he says that I am prone to all manners of greed, do I believe that or not? Or do I have some other sort of idea of what I think Jesus should be? Well, this guy seems to think that Jesus should be like any other good rabbi and dis, you know, dis, yeah, fam, uh, determine a family dispute, right? There's a question about the inheritance. And does this guy want Jesus to be sort of an uh, impartial mediator? Is that what he's asking him to do? What does he say? Divide, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? He wants Jesus to take his side. But is that really what Jesus is interested in doing? Well, he says, who made me a judge or arbitrator? over you. And I guess, friends, you know, what I realize, and I hope you see, I hope you see this in this story, is that oftentimes, you and I, we don't always know the proper way to approach Jesus. Sometimes we think Jesus is here to solve all of our life problems. Sometimes we think Jesus is here to make us happy, to make us healthy and wealthy and prosper. And we may think that Jesus wants to settle this kind of dispute, but is that really how Jesus responds to this guy? The amazing thing is Jesus does respond to him. He does give him an answer, but he goes to the very heart of the man. He says, you want me to, you want me to settle this family dispute between you and your brother? At the root of it is all manner of greed. Deal with that. In the family dispute, it may go away. He actually does address the man's question, but not the way that the man wants it. So the first thing, you know, you have to step back and ask yourself is, are you coming to Jesus as he presents himself, as the author of life, that when he says, take care, be on the lookout, you believe, you think about it, you take it more seriously, or do you think Jesus is just here to sort of settle your, you know, minor disputes in life, that he's here to sort of, you know, give you, I don't know, your best life now, you know, to answer the small questions in life? Well, Jesus goes to the very heart of it. And he says, there's a, there's a thin layer of mycelium that can choke out your faith if you don't see it. So let's go into the parable. Uh, he's going to call this guy a fool, which is kind of shocking because normally we think of Jesus as nice. And yet uh, in this story, he calls this guy a fool. In fact, God calls him a fool. So anytime God calls somebody a fool, our ears should prick up a little bit because nobody wants to be a fool. Whether you are formally educated or whether you are, you know, trained in a trade, nobody wants to be foolish. It's amazing. Even kids don't want to be treated like fools. Nobody wants to be a fool. So when God calls somebody a fool, there's a sense that you and I should listen up. So what is it about this man that is foolish? Well, let's look at the parable. Look at verse 16. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So what makes this man foolish? What makes this man foolish? Isn't that interesting? Because if you were listening to this story, you'd probably think, well, actually, I think that guy's pretty smart. I think he kind of figured out what life is because he had a whole bunch of extra stuff. And you know what he did? He was like, I'm going to save it so that I can live out Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you notice the guy even has a life verse? Eat, drink, and be merry. He's pulling that from the Old Testament. Now, he's, he's wildly misunderstanding that statement, but he's actually, he has a life verse, and he does exactly probably what you and I would do if we hit the jackpot. We would figure out what I can do to build more so that I can take care of myself and relax for the rest of my life. But friends, this is the very, these are the very teeth of the story. This is the surprise of the story, because the person that you and I think sounds really wise, really shrewd, uh, a good businessman, actually, in the eyes of God, is poor and naked, and he's got nothing. So what makes this guy foolish? If, most, if I said, hey, I hit the jackpot, you know what I decided to do? I closed all my bank accounts, opened a bunch more, and I made a big investment portfolio. Most of you would be patting me on the back, right? Maybe envying me a little bit, but most of people would say, that's exactly what you should do in life. Retire early, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And yet, God says, fool, fool. This very night, your life is required of you. So what makes this man foolish? Uh, that you should be asking that. Why is this guy foolish? Because I would think he's smart. In the eyes of the world, this guy figured it out. So what makes him foolish? Well, I think there's a couple of things that make him foolish. Number one, he's foolish about his source of success. What's the cause of the abundance? What does Jesus say the cause of the abundance is? Look, if you look in the parable, what does he say? Look at the verse 16. What causes the abundance? The land of the rich man produces abundantly. He attributes this apparently to himself. This guy is totally self-centered. If you didn't hear it when I read it, notice how many times this guy refers to himself. Uh, he thought to himself, verse 17, what shall, you can underline this in your Bible, just notice how many times he refers to himself. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store what? my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all of my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul. You see, this guy has a totally inward bent to his life. That's famously how Martin Luther described sin. It's the inward bent of the heart. It's the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. He's totally self-centered. The other thing this man is foolish about, as I've already pointed out, is he actually quotes the Bible. Isn't this amazing? He actually has a Bible verse that he puts on the back of his, you know, car on a bumper sticker. You know, maybe he has a tattoo of it, and it says, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Uh, that's said multiple times in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And so in his mind, he's actually, you know, making some kind of reference to a vague idea of God, right? So he has some kind of, you know, he's baptized his greed somehow by slapping a Bible verse on it. Right? He said, you know what, the point of life, eat, drink, and be merry. The other thing that I think you could point out about him, and I think this is really where we start to see that his gamble isn't quite working, and that is he's foolish about the length of his life. Did you catch that? He's foolish when it comes to how many days he actually has ahead of him. Right? Because that's exactly what God does in verse 20. He says, buddy, your heart's stopping tonight, and it ain't beating again. And you got to give me back the soul that's been given to you. This night, your soul is required of you. He's foolish about how many days he has on earth. You know, um, 
it's interesting, you know, if you, if you were really to step back and think about life, um, isn't it strange that, like, no churches ever build cemeteries anymore? Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny when we build this church, we didn't build a cemetery? I mean, when was the last time you went to a church where there was a cemetery out front? Uh, or when was the last time you went to a funeral and you saw the body? Or when was the last time you went to a funeral and not a celebration of life? You know, there's a real sense that we don't think about death. We've sort of removed it from everything in our life. Uh, in fact, I mean, even when we eat, we don't encounter death. I caught a fish last week, and I gutted it, and then I ate it. And I was like, this is horrible. I'm holding this dead animal? Who does this sort of thing? And then I went to Chick-fil-A and ate a bird, you know? <laughs> but I separated. There's this layer of separation from death that you and I live in. But I think there is something that we miss out, right? Because what's the purpose of seeing a cemetery? What's the purpose? Well, it's to honor those who have passed away, but there's also a sense that it should remind you that all of your days are numbered. There is a definite number of times your heart will beat. There is a definite number of times that you will clip your fingernails. <laughs> there's a definite number of times that you will blink. And the Bible says, before there was as yet one of them, your days were numbered in my book. And so God says, all the days that your life is given, God already knows. They've already been planned. But friends, do you live with that in mind? You know, I'll, I'll give you, a, a, you know, again, this goes back to, we don't really think about death, but uh, I'm shaped by a lot of old dead guys uh, who were pastors and preachers and apostles before me. And one of those guys that I love more than others is an old guy named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody know that name, Jonathan Edwards? He was uh, one of the first presidents of uh, the College of New Jersey, which is also known as what? Anybody know? Princeton University. And uh, there's still a hall named after him. Jonathan Edwards, famous preacher. But you may not know this, but he wrote a uh, short document called The Resolutions. And it was 70 things that he resolved to do throughout his life, and he read it often. And uh, you can go back, you can Google these, The Resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, and they're very, uh, uh, they're very challenging and sort of inspiring at the same way. Uh, and, you know, one of his resolutions, number nine, he says this, resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying and of the common things which are involved with and surround death. Could anything be more like outside the norm of our culture today? He says he's going to think about his death often in the details pertaining to his death. And if you were to read the rest of the resolutions, you know why he does that? He says so that he will do that which is most glorifying to God edifying to others, and to his own joy. So his looking at death is like a tuning fork that helps him realize what the purpose of his life actually is, that he shouldn't waste his life in entertainment and vain discussion. He should do the things that which are truly life. In, in number 52, he says, uh, I frequently, you know, resolved, you know, to, uh, he says, I frequently hear persons in old age whether that's you or not, I'll let you decide. Nobody knows if you're in your old age or not, right? Your day could come at any moment. He says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives all over again. So, resolved, that I will live just as I can imagine I shall wish I had done, supposing I lived to old age. You know, what's Edward's point? Edward's point was he was going to think about his death. Uh, when he saw the cemetery, he would think about it, and it would help him determine what was valuable in life and what was not valuable in life. And then he says, 
And I've heard a lot of older people on their deathbeds tell me that they wish they could have redone their whole life because they wasted it. They wasted it on things. And he says, so if I live to old age, I'm going to make sure that I don't have to say that. Uh, does anybody know, Jonathan Edwards, did he live to old age or not? He lived to 54. I'll let you decide if that's old age or not. <laughs> you know how he died? You know how he died? While he was uh, president of Princeton, uh, he was trying to promote the health of his community, and so he got inoculated to smallpox to encourage inoculations, and he passed away from that inoculation, actually killed him. But do you really think that he regretted the way that he lived his life and why he did that? You know, I know it's, it can be morbid to think about your death, but it can also be incredibly freeing if you actually think about it because it resets your priorities. And friends, I know many of you have heard me say this before, but if you don't know this, I have great news for you. All you really have in life, friend, all you really have is your relationship with God and the lives of people you invest in. That's it. Everything else is just ending up in a trash dump one day, or it's going to end up in a storage shed, and your great-grandkids aren't going to know what to do with it. So it's going to get sold on eBay, right? It is your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is the only relationship that will go on for eternity. And secondly, friends, all we really have is the people that we invest in. The Bible says this in a multitude of ways. It says, what's, you know, what's the most important commandment? What? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to invest in the people around you. That's what you have. You know, why is this guy foolish? He's foolish because there is a whole world that he doesn't even think about. What's, what else could you do if you inherited a vast sum of money? What else could you do with it? He says, I'm going to store it up for myself so I can eat, drink, and be merry. What else could you do? Well, Jesus goes on and he actually gives an answer to that. Let's see if you can find it. This is Luke chapter 12, same chapter, same context. Look at verse 32. Jesus has just gotten done saying, don't be anxious about your life because you can't add anything to it. And he says in verse 32, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Therefore, do what? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. John Chrysostom, this pastor that lived in the 300s, when he was preaching on this passage, you know what he said? He said, the stomachs of the poor are better barns than the high walls that this man built. What does Jesus say? Jesus says there is a different way of living. There is a kingdom, not of me, myself, and I, not the kingdom of me, but there's a kingdom of God, and that we don't get anxious, and we don't get caught up yearning for the next mirage of the things, because we understand that it's a mirage. Instead, instead of being rich in this world, we strive to be rich towards God. And one of the primary ways Jesus says that you and I do that is we loosen our grip on the money and the things that we have, and instead of receiving and getting and buying more, we do what? We sell our possessions and we give to the needy. This man can't even fathom a life like that. 
For him, it's me, myself, and I. The trinity that he worships is me, myself, and I. You know, let me, okay, this is kind of a deep thought, so just kind of, just go there with me, okay? Just go there with me, if you will. Entertain, entertain your pastor. Love me by listening to me for a second. Are you, are you a self or are you a soul? When you think about who you are, do you think I'm a self or do you think you're a soul? And friends, there's a big difference in how you answer that question. Uh, you know, when I, I, I Googled this, you know, like, because when I don't pray and I need information, I go to Google. Um, Google is like the craziest therapist doctor. Do you realize that? Like, the things you tell Google, like, what is this weird thing on my toe? You would never say to any other human. <laughs> Google is where we're the most honest, right? In a lot of ways. The things you Google, Lord have mercy, right? Uh, this week, I, I wanted to see, you know how you can see what other people search by the first word? You know how you, like, search your name, and then you type your name, and you see what other people said about you? You've never done that? Turns out there's other Dustin Jernigans, and they all have, like, arrest records in Florida and stuff. It's horrible. <laughs> None of it's me. Don't believe it. It's not true. None of that's true. I'm Debbie. But if you type in the word self, S-E-L-F, in Google, it'll give you what other people go on to search for. Anybody ever done this? Have you seen you type in a word and like Google gives you what other people are searching for? What do you think comes up when people type the word self? Well, I wrote down a bunch of them. Self-love was number one. Self-love. Self-actualization. Self-efficacy. Self-conscious. Self-determination. Self-esteem. And self-worth. You could also say it as me, myself, and I. But friends, I'm not doubting knowing yourself and all the stuff that it's talking about. Uh, but this is something Eugene Peterson, the guy who uh, made the message translation, he was a small town pastor for his whole ministry at a little Presbyterian church in Maryland. And yet he's one of the best-selling Christian authors. And in a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, he makes this observation. He says, in our current culture, soul has given way to self as the term of choice to designate who and what we are. Self is the soul minus God. Self is what is left of soul with all transcendence and intimacy squeezed out. The self with no reference to God or others. You know, one way to translate this is he says to himself, self you got everything you need. He has no sense of transcendence. He thinks he's gotten all of this on his own. He doesn't see that God has given him everything, even the breath in his lungs. And he can't conceptualize a world where other people have a claim to what he owns, that the poor have a claim to what he has, that he owes people a debt of love, which is meant to be played out in real ways. He has no sense of intimacy, no sense of social responsibility, no sense of brotherly love, and he has no sense of transcendence. He has squeezed everything of his soul out, and he's just a self. So, friend, which are you? I would suggest to you that at a profound level, to be wise in this age, friend, you have to recognize that you are a soul. You are a soul. What does God say to this man? 
fool, this night your soul is required of you. That, friends, you and I will give an accounting. That our souls are on loan. That uh, if you are a soul, on some level, you are also a steward. You don't have a claim to it. It has been lent to you by the Lord. I mean, that's the real big leap that Christians make with money, right? Hopefully, you've made that leap that you don't see your money as yours. You see it as ultimately whose? It's the Lord's. And you and I are meant to be stewards of that which is already His, which is why we're generous to others and why we're generous to the poor, because we recognize that everything we have comes from the Father of lights from whom all good things flow. Friends, as I finish up, I just want to suggest to you that um, discipleship following Jesus, we don't arrive. It's a journey. It's a journey, and there are mirages always on this path. (laughs) And we can get sidetracked by the mirages of more, more, more. And it affects every one of us, myself included. But friends, part and parcel of being a disciple is listening to the voice of Jesus. You know what Jesus says? He says, take hold of that which is truly life. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you will drink. Don't focus on this life. Instead, focus on the next life. The way that Jesus says it in this parable, he says, don't focus so much on being rich in this life. Be rich in the eyes of God. You know, I'll finish up with this. You know, uh, looking into my own heart, uh, you know, which is a terrifying prospect, Uh, because when I look in my heart, all I see is more, more, more. And, you know, it's it's like a leaky faucet that you can't stop. And friends, what I would suggest to you is that you don't stop the desire for more and more. And Jesus will say you don't stop it. Um, The only way to really change the direction of your life is to replace it with something better. You know, you've often, maybe you've heard me say this before, but if I said, don't think about the red apple in my hand, don't, don't picture a red apple, what are you thinking about? A red apple. But I told you not to. Don't think about more. Don't think about that. How do you stop thinking about it? You have to imagine a what? An orange in this hand. You have to give yourself something else to strive and to look for. And friend, for the Christian, you know what that is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul's trying to explain the gospel, I love the way he says it in 2 Corinthians. He says this, For you know the grace of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see what Paul's getting at? He's using money as a metaphor. God left the riches of heaven, the riches and the glory of heaven, and he became poor so that you and I would inherit everything, that one day God will give us the kingdom of God. And he says that change, that Jesus was stripped of everything, that he took the punishment of our sins, that he left the glory of heaven and he became a poor man so that you and I could be reconciled to God and take hold of that which is truly life. He says because that's true, it changes you from the inside out and it loosens the grip. And you know what else it does? It replaces your love. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says it this way. He says, don't seek after the things of this life. Don't seek after good clothes and money and life and experiences. Don't seek after the more. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't look for the red apple. Instead, 
Seek his kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God is that thing that replaces it. Uh, friends, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, your gospel teaches us that which is truly life. And Father, uh, we confess that so much our hearts are prone to wander and strive for more and more. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see that these things are a mirage. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred and our affections would be stirred so that we would desire your kingdom, desire to be generous to the poor, generous to others, more than we desire to accumulate things for ourselves. Father, I pray that the things of this world would be like dust and wood dust in our mouth, that we would see that it is not life. And Lord, that we would see that your life and your kingdom is better than anything. Father, we pray this morning for those who can't be with us, for those who are suffering in this life. We think of all of the people, all of our friends, those around the world that are still suffering from COVID. Lord, we pray that you would preserve their lives and have mercy on each one of them. And Lord, give them courage and peace. Lord, we pray for Paul Deller and for Randy, for Bryce and Phoebe Allstad and for Lynn Toombs. Uh, Father, meet them by your Spirit even now. Encourage them for the days ahead. Give them endurance. Father, we pray for a sister church in our community, community, Bible fellowship. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with that church for blessing. And Lord, we pray that they would try, truly see that which is truly life. Father, we pray for our Stephen ministry. Uh, Lord, I pray that many men and women uh, would come forward over the years uh, to become Stephen ministers, Lord, that they would take courage to invest in the lives of other people. And Father, I pray that they would trust not in themselves, uh, but in your Holy Spirit who is at work within them. And so, Lord, we pray a blessing over that ministry. And Lord, we pray that you would loosen our grip on this life and invest in the eternal one. May I said in Jesus' name, amen.